Welcome to Unbreakable Spirit, stories of inspiring and thriving with Jennifer Seven, co-author of a book that is part of the Sisterhood Folios, a number one international bestseller. This is a podcast about real women who've overcome tremendous obstacles and come out on the other side to thrive. Whether their hardships were financial, relational, or health, these women dug deep and found the light out of the dark to rise from the ashes, to find the ability to forgive, to love, and to live an authentic, joyful life. Now, here is your host, Jennifer Seven. Welcome, Cindy Bettino. I just want to share with you a little bit about Cindy, our guest today. Cindy is a life coach, an energy worker, speaker, author, certified Vistage speaker, and she's a happiness expert. And these are just a few words to describe the amazing Cindy Bettino, who is one of my dearest friends, and I am so excited to have her with us today. She's going to share some more about this, but her coaching actually comes from her intensive study to become a Brennan Healing Science Practitioner. She's also a George Mason University graduate with honors. Yay you, Cindy. And she won the Wall Street Journal Award with a degree in economics. And that's pretty cool when you are coming from a math place into a very completely different place. In 2019, she was named one of the seven women of Mason. And in 2011, she founded Transformational Healing. She's a teacher by trade, teaches relationship and life skills, and she is a happiness expert. But what I want to talk about today and what Cindy's going to share with us is her journey, how she got to being a happiness expert. (laughs) So Cindy, welcome, welcome, welcome. And I uh, look forward to hearing your story. Thank you, Jennifer. One of my best friends. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you know, you're a really good friend when you see all of a person, right? And you still love them. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And I love you too. (laughs) So, yeah. So I, you know, I, I always tell people that the family that I grew up in, they were, I I describe them, um, they're like the poem of the girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead. When they were good, they were very, very good. And when they were bad, they were awful. So my family, we were either laughing, giggling, playing, loving, singing, um, or it was total dysfunction, physical abuse, emotional, mental abuse. There was depression. There was addiction. There was pedophilia. I mean, you name it. It was somewhere in my family. Wow. And um, my parents were both teachers and they were both in the top of their field. And they, you know, when they were good, they were very, very good, right? They dedicated their lives to helping, saving, teaching, inspiring, motivating children. And they did that exceptionally well. But when they came home at night, closed the door, and, you know, the curtains were closed, we saw a very different side of them. I mean, they came home as the imperfect, frustrated, tired human beings. Angry. Yes. Angry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My mom um, is an adult child of an alcoholic. And um, it was interesting. It was in my early 20s and I I read a book on adult child of alcoholics or adult children of alcoholics. And I'm like, oh my God, it was my mother to the T. And she had, her go-to was anger. Hmm. And, um, and then my dad, my dad just had a lot of beauty in him, like my mom, but also had a lot of rage. And um, yeah, so I, I, both my parents were teachers. So we were like the latchkey kids back in the day. Right. So um, we would come home and be alone at, in the house. And my brothers learned from my mother and my father all about rage. And so I would spend a lot of afternoons hiding in my closet because um, my brothers would start fighting. 
and, and you were the only girl, right? I was the youngest and the only girl. Youngest and the girl. Yeah. So I would, I would huddle in my closet and hide a lot. Well, talk about not feeling safe, right? No. And they would even, I mean, they would even do that when um, my parents were home, you mm-hmm. know, they would, they would um, pick on you. Yeah. And it just, you know, it all kind of went downward, right? So my oldest, the oldest brother would pick on the middle one and then the middle one would pick on the younger one. And then um, my youngest brother um, literally would beat me up regularly until I was 18 years old. Oh, wow. So, um, so it was, it was, it was, yeah. <laughs> did did your the best. Did your oldest brother get the brunt of it from your dad or your mom? And then that's why it kind of trickled down. Oh yeah. My, my oldest brother, bless him. He was really, he was, yeah, it wasn't good. Um, the expectations of him were just not normal. And you know, I, my parents were so um, professionally successful and they were so admired that mm-hmm. people would go to them, you know, for advice and and they would give it and people would go, oh, yes, wow. And then they would come home and they would be like, you need to do this. And we're like, yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, we're like, and so it was, I think it, you know, over the years, I've had a lot of time to think about it, obviously. And, and when you're on this pedestal, my father was too. My father was a, grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He was a first generation American. He was the only person in his family that graduated from high school, let alone went to college and got a master's degree. And they used to call my father Pasha King. Wow. They were, they were Greek, Greek Jews. It's a Pasha. They would call him Pasha King. And um, as a golden glove boxer um, back in the day, he protected his family. So if anybody like teased a cousin or a brother or a sister, my father would go and he'd beat the crap out of them. Wow. Yeah. And that was his way of, of protecting the family. So my father sat on a pedestal from his whole family, um, then professionally, and you know, and he would come home and <laughs> we'd be we'd be like, Yeah, no, we're not listening to you. And yeah, we're not gonna do what you say. And yeah, thanks for your advice. But and I mean, then we were he, kids. He would you know? get really angry then and oh. then the whole turmoil what happened and so we lived in um that 200 year old farmhouse in Connecticut and it had a front stairs and a back stairs and we always got in trouble during dinner we stopped arguing at dinner time when finally someone had the great idea of bringing the tv into the kitchen (laughs) and we stopped fighting but you know we would we would tell you know about our day because my mom we had family dinners every night and um, <laughs> inevitably, somebody, one of four of us got into trouble probably you know, numerous times in a week, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what kids do, right? We're not always behaving well. So um, I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't want to exaggerate it, but I would say good, at least once a week, <laughs> somebody would name how they got into trouble that day. And, um, and then my, um, and then it would start, you know, my father would end up chasing my, bro- one oh, of no. my brothers up, up the front, up the stairs and down the stairs. I can, I can see stairs. that. Yeah. And, you know, and then of course, I mean, I'll all start laughing and, but um, yeah, no, it would, it wasn't, that, that wasn't, that wasn't so great. So anyway, so I, I made a, I made a promise to myself when I was very young, it's probably sitting in that closet, right. Or after getting beaten up um, by one of my brothers. And I just said, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be like them is Mm -hmm. basically what I said to myself. And I would rather be hit than hit another person. And, um, and you have to be careful what you ask for. Right. So, so that, that was me. So when my father and my brothers would, would fight, I would get in the middle because I knew if my father hit me, he would stop because 
he didn't want to hit me. He was mad at them. But if I got in the middle, then I could diffuse it. And that became the pattern for most of my life. And, and putting yourself in a protector role as, yeah. as the little younger sister. The littlest of them all. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was me. And then, so it's, I mean, of no surprise, of course, to anyone that does the work that I do, that of course, one of my first adult relationships was physically, mentally, and emotionally abusive. And, you know, we do what we know. We do, we do what's comfortable, even if we don't like it. So I didn't on purpose get into this relationship, but there were so many signs. And, and yet you were probably very, still very young. So we oh, don't yeah. know, we don't know these things. We don't realize mm-hmm. we're repeating patterns. It's, mm-hmm. we're just attracted to that, which we're trying to resolve. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so I didn't want to be hit anymore. So um, after he had thrown me around the room, is, is this while you're in high school or are you out of school? No, I was in, college? I was in college. Okay. And um, so I drew a line in the sand and I, I said, I will never allow a man to touch me in anger again. And the beautiful thing about drawing a line in the sand is that when you have positive consequences from drawing that line, then it emboldens you, right? To draw more lines in the sand, right? So then over the years, it was like, so, and no man will, what we call now gaslight, right? Or no man will ever be emotionally abusive or no, you know, and um, you, you start standing for yourself more and more. And um, so that was part of the journey, right? Was to figure out what I deserved and what I wanted in my life. And from what I understand, from abusive relationships is there's the pain, but then there's the, Oh, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. It'll never happen again until it happens again. It's a, it's very much a pattern, right? Well, the, yeah, it's a pattern and it's, I call it um, the simmering pot. You know, someone only has to harm you once really, because then in your brain, it's then always a possibility, mm. right? So it's not like, so there are some physically abusive relationships that they go, well, I, I've only hit her, you know, twice in 10 years, <laughs> just, right? It's A, that's twice too many. <laughs> yes. And, um, and B, what that, what that, the person who's being abused, and there are men who, who are abused um, as well. So I don't want to say it's just a female problem, but when you've been physically abused, um, you start gauging, right? So somebody comes, so they come in, right? They come home from work and you're like, okay, so which person am I going to see today? And it's, and it's the simmering pot. Like my mom used to make a, a good two-day marinara sauce, right? So, you know, and it always had to simmer. It couldn't boil, but a simmer can go to a boil in a second. Yes. Right. And so that's what the abused person is always gauging where they are. And then that's how they shift themselves to react or respond. And so it's not like a physically abusive relationship is, is only one where the person is physically abused on a daily basis. It doesn't, it, it doesn't work that way. And yes, there is a lot of Typically, there's, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I did that, I'll never do that to you again. And then you could go years mm-hmm. without someone doing that. And then, but it, you know, it can, it can and happen. And happens again. And yeah. that having to live your life like that, always wondering a little bit of, or, or like you said, just watching uh presenting yourself in a way to try to make sure it, the pot doesn't boil. No, absolutely. And, um, it, you know, it's a horrible way to live. It's, it's, and, and, and so in my thirties, my early thirties, I, I was married to a man who, who didn't, who wasn't physically abusive, you know, and he, he was super smart, good looking. He loved me. I loved him. 
Um, and I had two beautiful children. We lived in this cute little English Tudor house in Fairfax, Virginia. And, you know, I was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like the perfect fairy tale. I know. And so, you know, if, if someone looked in the windows of my home, you know, they would have seen two very happy kids. My kids were so easy. God bless them. I love my children. And, um, you know, we had food in the fridge. We had clothes on our backs. We had cars to drive. We had money in the bank. We just, and people would have said, Cindy, you have this idyllic life. Like you should be so happy. Like, and I'd be like, I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not happy. And um, I realized that there was this disconnect, right, between my view of my reality and the real view of my reality. Like, and, okay, and you, I had got to break that down for me because okay. I'm not quite sure I follow that. So, so I had, so I had three epiphanies in my early 30s, and the first one was that there was a disconnect from my view of reality because I was miserable. Right. Which was your and reality. That was your was reality. My reality and the true reality. Right. Which was that I had everything I needed. The truth was, I pr- pretty much had everything I wanted. And um, yet I was miserable. Like, and then there's that why. Right. So there's <laughs> right. that why. Why? So that, so that was the first part. And so the first epiphany. And then the second epiphany and well and let me just explain so the first epiphany is so important because when we realize that our view of reality is not necessarily the true reality right that's when we really begin to start asking ourselves important questions like so i'm making all these assumptions about an event or a conversation or someone's look or whatever like this is what how i interpret it is that really what they mean? Or is that really what happened, right? So, so the first epiphany, even though it sounds kind of bizarre, is, is super important. And then the second epiphany was, I was the common denominator in my unhappiness. M- my kids weren't unhappy. My husband wasn't unhappy. You know, I, So I was the common denominator in my unhappiness. And that sounds kind of sad. But then it gave me hope because that meant that the converse was true, that I could be the common denominator in my happiness. I was an adult. You know, I didn't have to blame anybody anymore for my unhappiness. You know, I could, if I can make myself unhappy, then you I have to be able make to make myself happy. happy. Yes. And so the third epiphany was, so why? Mm-hmm. Like, why? And as I really just thought and journaled and and started to go to therapy it was that I wasn't given the skills that I needed to be happy because who gets skills we don't get those kind of skills I mean you're just supposed to be happy right (laughs) well like if you looked at so my parents grew up in the depression era it's how old you know I am and my parents had fabulous survival skills. Oh my God, how they put money away and had money to retire and had everything that they had when they made like pennies, right? I mean, they had fabulous survival skills, but they didn't have good communication skills. They didn't treat each other nicely. (laughs) They didn't, they were my relationship don't, they were my happiness don't, they were my parenting don't. I mean, don't, and don't get me wrong, my, my parents, again, when they were good, they were very, 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 very good. And they helped a lot of people, but they, they weren't given the skills either, right? So that's when I decided to go on my own quest for happiness. So, so I wanna, I, I've got to stop you for a moment because I want to go back to your epiphanies. So when, I mean, did you have these epiphanies all at the same time or did they evolve or when did you have that first one? There you are in this perfect oh, life, miserable. Miserable. And I, I don't know, something happened somewhere and I can't quite remember what it was, but it sent me to therapy. This is during the marriage. You're this is like... during the marriage. And my my youngest daughter was, I think she was just out of diapers. Okay. And I would just 
start crying. And I, I called my, I think this is what it was. I called my mom and I couldn't even talk. Oh gosh. I just cried. And my mom is like, Cindy, you need to get your butt to therapy. Like you need help. Like this is not, you're scaring me. And there is a history of depression and not just depression in my family, there's suicide. I mean, I have two aunts that committed suicide, a first cousin that committed suicide. So de depression can be genetic. Right, definitely. And, right, so it was definitely raising its ugly head. And I just remember my first therapy session, again, I just cried. I just cried the entire therapy session. And my poor therapist was like, well, does your husband, does your husband hit you? No. Is he mean to you? N no. Do your children have it? And I'm like, no, no, like, no, 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 no. And I could just see on her face, like, like, I don't okay. get this. What's yeah, wrong like, with you? So, so your, your life doesn't suck. You know, you're, you have clothes and you, you have a good life. So what? Right. So that's, I think, so that's when the epiphanies really started. Right. When someone was giving me a mirror to kind of look at myself and, and, and it, so it, it happened like over, I would say probably over like a year, I had like these three epiphanies and it really motivated me to, if there was a workshop that said, you know, do you want to be a better spouse? I signed up for it. If, if there was a book that said, if you want to be a better parent, read me, I read it. Um, I was in therapy every two weeks. I was in, I mean, I just, and I took it so seriously. I was so motivated because I didn't want to be miserable anymore. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be a good parent to my kids. I wanted to be a good spouse to my husband. I just, I wanted to be what I wasn't, which was really unhappy. And you, you wanted to feel better. I have oh, to God. say kudos to your mom for recommending therapy because so many of that generation, my parents included, thought therapy was just a waste of time. Why would you pay money to go sit on a couch and talk to somebody oh, my about father, your problems? Oh, my father thought therapy was crap. I mean, he really, but my mom, my mom was like, you've got to get help. I mean, you just, you've got to get help because she knew she couldn't help me because I was just, I couldn't even, I couldn't even talk. And, and we hide it. The people who, who struggle with depression are really good at hiding it. Right. So I didn't cry all the time. Right. So when people saw me, and especially I was in the fitness industry at the time, they saw this happy, funny, person that got up in front of people with hardly any clothes on <laughs> just up and down and you know made people feel good and and you know I, I remember talking to one of my best friends and saying I called her in the middle of the night one night and I was just like I feel like I'm drowning I just I feel like I'm drowning and she's like what like she because she didn't because everybody's yet. looking at you from the outside seeing this picture but underneath mm -hmm. There's a lot of pain and suffering. A lot of pain. Yeah, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of, yeah. And, and a lot of trauma to get through, right? So, um, you know, one of the things I really, I happened upon, which I was, I feel so blessed. I mean, I know some people have a, have a difficult time finding a good therapist. And I was just so, I manifested, let's just, we'll speak in energetic terms, right? I was... I manifested some great therapists in my life and they, if they said, Cindy, do this, I did it. I mean, my, my first therapist was a clinical psychologist and she gave me these forms to fill out every time I had a strong emotion, whether it was something happy or something sad, I wrote down the emotion. I wrote down what happened. I wrote down my belief about it and I wrote down, I don't know, something else. In two weeks, I had a stack, <laughs> I had like 25 sheets of paper and I came in for my next session and I handed her the stack and she was like, oh my, oh my God, <laughs> you did you your really, homework, you did your homework. And I was so good. And so as a, as a life coach right now, I, I give my, my clients, you know, a homework, uh, they have homework every week because 
if we don't have homework, then what we do in that session is it comes and goes. It's in and out. It's it's done. If we don't have homework that brings us back to the epiphanies that we had or the the struggles, right, and the challenges, and then if we journal about it, if we if we meditate on it, if we keep it somehow in our brain, right? If we have a skill to to practice, then it stays with us. So I used to go to therapy, I'd come back and I, I had I had nannies and I did um, the money that I made in the fitness industry, I, I paid my nannies and um, because I didn't want to beat my children. Mm. My mother had four kids all under the age of seven and she really shouldn't have been home with four kids <laughs> under the age of seven. I mean, some people are meant to be, you know, stay-at-home moms and, and some aren't. And so I, I had the beautiful ability to be like a, I worked part-time and around my kids' schedules. And um, so I would come home and I would download my therapy session with my nanny. Oh, that's pretty cool. And I would go, oh my God, I learned so much. And I would just like, bah, 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 bah. and then she became like my accountability partner. <laughs> she would be like, oh, Cindy, you're da, 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 da. you forgot. And I'm like, oh, damn, that's right. I did, da, 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 da. you know, and it was, um, so it was really good. And I got to practice a lot on my nannies. And um, so it was, yeah, it was fun. So this, this work that you were doing and working really hard, it led you to make some pretty big decisions in your life. You want to tell us about some of those? Oh, decisions. Um, decisions like um, going to the Barbara Brennan School of Healing. Yes, yes. Tell us about that. Well, first, George Mason, right? Okay. So, George, so first, George Mason. And the beautiful thing about George Mason was that, you know, I was a dance major when I was 19 years old at Southern Methodist University. And um, I had done some dancing professionally prior to going there. And um, I had this belief about myself that I was stupid because dancers were not considered intelligent people back in that day. So if you were a dancer, you were considered kind of stupid. And um, the man I married, right, so brilliant, double major, finance, German studies, could speak German fluently, I mean, brilliant. And typically when you don't value yourself, when you don't feel good enough, you attach yourself to someone that you think is better than you, smarter than you, um, will be more successful than you, um, what, what, whatever it is. So I went back to college um, when I was, when I had just given birth to um, my son. And when he was six months old, I, I quit work and I went to George Mason and I started getting A's like A's. And I was an economics major. That's a pretty interesting major to choose when you're a dancer. I know. <laughs> right, right, left brain, right, left brain. And um, I loved because I, lo uh, I love like puzzles and I loved chaos and I love bringing organization to to like I can see a picture and kind of organize it. Right. And that's basically kind of what economics is. Right. So um, and I knew a lot of people thought it was really hard. And mm -hmm. it would give you validation too, if you were right. choosing something really hard and you could do it and yeah. I could do it. And then, oh my God, I took statistics and I got A's in statistics. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not stupid. Like it was really cool. Like I had all this validation that I wasn't stupid. Like I'm smart. Like, and then it was a complete surprise to me that I won an award because that award, I don't know if they still give it, but that was an award that was actually uh, chosen. The person was chosen by the professors in the department. Oh, that's so really was, amazing. Yes. Yeah. So it wasn't like based on, you know, A's or, or papers that you'd written or anything like that. It was so, so, so that was a really good first step for me to realize that, okay, so now I'm smart. So now I figured out that I'm smart. I'm not stupid. And then, um, I decided through a, through a therapist, she's a, a licensed social worker, but she was also an energy worker. And I started getting into the energy work piece and I, I thought it was really, really kind of interesting and fascinating. And like, do I believe in it? Do I not believe in it? And, um, 
then I, I was going through a tough time in my marriage and started drinking a little bit more than I should have. And I realized that I could start reading people and I could tell people about themselves, which is totally wrong to do, by the way. I'm just saying, I mean, we, you don't do that. So if you believe that you're an empath or if you believe that you're an intuitive, do not read people unless they give you permission. <laughs> And then certainly don't tell them if they don't want to hear it. Right? And yeah, certainly don't tell them. And so I would, I would go to my therapist and I'd go, oh man, I did She's like, no, 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 no. You can't do that. That's invasive. You're invading their energy. You're invading their space. But so there, there was something to it. And then um, I'm a kinesthetic learner. So I learn by doing, not a visual learner first. So like reading a book or like I would be, it would be horrible for me to try to do online courses. Like I'm so glad that I, went to school in the day that I did because kinesthetic learners have a really difficult time doing like online learning or just like read a book and take an exam. Mm -hmm. I'm not good that way. I'm, I'm kinesthetic first to auditory second. So um, one of the reasons why I did so well in Georgia Mason is because I would take notes and then I would type the notes that I had written and then it, then it got programmed into the brain. So so there was a school that I was told about called the Barbara Brennan School of Healing, where they teach hands-on energy healing. Barbara Brennan was one of the first people in the late 80s, early 90s to bring hands-on energy work to the United States. So she brought it to the U.S. in a very big way. She had two books that were um, New York Times bestsellers for years and years. Um, and this was all before Reiki came to the U.S. And um, her school was also known as an emotional boot camp because her belief was you could not help another person in their healing journey if you could not tell where you ended and they began. So you had to know yourself intimately, both your brilliance and your what your brokenness, yes, your brokenness, <laughs> your bad habits, your limiting behaviors, your fears, your triggers. Like you had to know yourself intimately and work on your own healing before you could go and try to help another person. And, um, and you, if you go to the website, the Barbara Brennan School of Healing, if you go to their website, you'll see a lot of the woo-woo stuff. You'll see, you know, balls of light in people's hands and people meditating and praying and all this like woo-woo stuff, but they don't show you <laughs> the emotional boot camp stuff where they help you look at you with a very big mirror. Um, and it changed, changed my life. And it was a huge commitment for you to go to that school because it wasn't close by. You had to go. No. <laughs> so when I went to the school, we would, um, take over a whole conference center in Miami. But how long did you go for? I mean, you were going down there for weeks, months, weeks. Or so we would go one week every two months. And we went five weeks a year. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and it was it was expensive. We had to you, know, you pay to fly there. You, you paid to, to stay in the hotel. You pay for food. Then, of course, you you paid tuition. Um, and then it was required that you were in therapy um, the whole time that you're there because they're bringing out a lot of things in you that that are shadow pieces, you know, pieces of you that there's so much <laughs> we're we, we know a lot so energy work does really have a lot to do with brain science right so I'm not going to get into a lot of it but but we are in the subconscious part of our brain 95% of the time which means that we do what we've always done we don't think about talking we talk we don't think about walking we walk we don't think about reacting we just react and so at the Brennan school and what I do with my clients is I help them, I give them skills to look at that 95% and pull things out one at a time and look at it and say, I don't, I don't have to react anymore. I can respond now. I can look at my beliefs one at a time and say, do I like this? Is it mine? Do I not like this? I can look at my bad habits. Is this something I want to work on? Is this, how am I going to work on this? Am I going to be working on it the rest of my life? Yes. <laughs> am I going to like, we, we take all that stuff out and we look at it and we decide if it's one of our superpowers, even if it is something that has brought us shame. It, and, and so it, in therapy, through the work and then through the therapy, you, you end up 
learning how to accept and love every imperfect part of your humanity. Well, that is a very powerful statement that you just made. That's pretty amazing. And it was there that I realized that we're all human. We all make mistakes. We don't have to have shame and guilt. I, oh my God. So my mother was a Catholic. My father was a Jew. I mean, I grew up with double doses of guilt, man. (laughs) I mean, guilt, 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 guilt. And so like removing layer and layer and layer of the guilt, the shame, the, the pain, the trauma, um, and, and taking out the shovels and, and getting all those beautiful jewels that are down in that subconscious, down in that the five-year-old part of your psyche, like really understanding how your psyche works and why there's such a good reason why we do everything that we do from the most rational to the most irrational, from the smartest to the dumbest. There's, there's a really good reason to be able to look fear in the face, right? Mm. And go, it's just fear. And, and, I'm kind of making light of it because fear is scary. I mean, it's scary. I mean, there's, and, and do I succumb to fear still? Absolutely. I'm human. Um, But does it happen as often as it did? No. Does it affect my life as intensely? No. I think when you start to recognize fear for what it is, that can really help you work with it. Uh, I had a, a wonderful mentor say to me once, she said, of course, we're going to have fear. Of course we are. And she said, she, she kind of taught me this mantra to just say, hello, fear. Thanks for showing up. You know, I hear you. I recognize what you're telling me, but I've got this. So, you know, you can just move on along because uh, I know what I'm going to do with this. And, and that really helped me compartmentalize it a little bit that, mm-hmm. yes, it's there. And it's there for a reason, maybe to show you something or mm-hmm. teach you something, but it doesn't have to rule you. Right. So recognizing it, acknowledging it, and then letting it move along while you get on with things. <laughs> yes. Well, so Cindy, so all of the, going to that school, mm-hmm. uh, it, you ended up making a huge life change. Yeah. I asked my husband for a divorce. And yeah. And I had no intention when I went to the school that I was going to do that. And so when, when you don't believe that you are worthy, right, and you attach yourself to someone you believe is worthy, like you have to convince myself that there was something inside of me that was bad. Bad and ugly. I can understand that because of the upbringing that you had. And so, so I decided I was a bad person, a bad girl, because I liked bad boys, right? that's the bad boys, the abuse, the whatever, right? So I decided if I wanted a good boy, I had to be a good girl. So like, if you remember Gilligan's Island, right? So I tried to be Marianne for my, my husband. My husband was a good Nebraskan bred, blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, good Midwestern boy. And came from a really good family, you know, and when we say good family, right? So back in my day, a good family meant that they were rich. So they were yeah. <laughs> a good family. And, um, and, uh, and I tried to be someone I wasn't, right? I, I, I started, I dressed differently. I tried to speak differently. I tried, and, and the truth is he married Marianne from Gilligan's Island. He didn't marry, um, whatever her name was. Cindy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, because you presented yourself as Marianne. Yeah. So he didn't. When you try to be someone you're not, you look at your life through different eyes. And the more I, like I used to even say to him, and it makes me so sad now, I used to, I used to look at him and go, why are you with me? Like, I don't understand. Like, I just don't understand why you're with me. And bless him, he would tell me. And, and, but he would say things like, you're the spice in my life. Like he couldn't give like actionable items like to why I was there. So he, and he didn't do it on purpose. It was just, 
but once I started realizing my value and realizing like what I actually brought to relationship and what I actually bring to people's lives and my life and what, how I actually show, show up as a parent and how hard my work ethic was. And like, once I started realizing my value, he came off that pedestal, right? And, and rather than him being better than me, I started looking at him more as a partner and not as this perfect husband, which of course he wasn't because nobody's perfect. And I was like, this isn't the right partner for me. Mm. And, and of course it's so much more complicated than that. And, and he, he's such, he's a good man. I always say I did good the first time I did better the second, mm-hmm. not because now not not because my now husband is better than my first husband but we're better partners because you know who you are now yes and I know my value and I can be authentic and 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 I didn't have to make pretend I was somebody else which is exhausting it's exhausting oh it's so exhausting yeah it's very exhausting and and everybody's (laughs) looking at you wondering what what's your problem why are you unhappy you've got everything Right. Oh, I was told I was crazy by so many people, even my family. I I actually lost most of my family in the divorce. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, Yeah. you went through a lot. So that brings you to this life you have now, this man you have now, this business that you have now. So so all this work, I mean, wow, you have really done a lot of work on yourself. You have learned a lot. Economics, Barbara Brennan School. I mean, wow. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And, you know, it's, it was me finally figuring out what enough was for me. That was, that is, and it's still my journey to this day. Right. And, and it's like, you know, you, we, we had dinner the other night and I was telling you that, you know, I was, I got in trouble. <laughs> I got in trouble for the first time in years about my behavior, my, with my father passing and I didn't necessarily behave as, as, as you felt as I could have. (laughs) So I was, so I still get triggered and and I can still behave badly, but, but I I have an amazing life and it's because I don't follow anybody else's definition of what enough is for them. Like I have what is enough for me. And, and people thought I was crazy because I went from this, we had a, the 6,000 square foot house in Fairfax on five acres and it, and it, and it was beautiful. It really was. It was a beautiful home. Um, my ex made a ginormous amount of money. He was very successful. Our kids just thrived in the environment. It, and now I live in a little cabin on the side of a mountain. <laughs> And I used to have a huge closet filled with designer clothes. And now I have my little Ikea covers <laughs> that have my clothes in them. And, and, but I'm happy. I'm really, really happy. And I'm happy from the inside out. Do I still sometimes struggle with depression? Yes. Um, but 90, I would say a good 90% of the time, you know, I am a really happy person. And I can say that I feel enough that I have enough. I don't drive a fancy car anymore, but I love my little Jeep. I, I call it tiny. It's, it's <laughs> tiny. It's tiny and tough like me. I, I don't have a half a million dollar horse. I have an off the track thoroughbred that I paid you know, just a, not much for. Right. But, but he is, he's fabulous. He's amazing. He's, he's incredible. Yeah. So, so Cindy now, you are the happiness expert. This is what you do. So I would love for you to share with our listeners what what is a happiness what is a happiness expert and how can you help people become happy? So I teach life and relationship skills, the skills we weren't taught by our parents, right? So I teach a lot of communication skills. I teach a lot of conflict skills. I teach a lot of skills around healthy boundaries, um, how to say no with your heart, how to use your words, how to find your words. Um, I teach um, a lot about trust. Um, I teach a lot about self-love. You know, when we build that inner anchor, we don't have to find our value from other people. You know, we don't compare ourselves to the people on Facebook, right? Facebook's not real. 
But anyway, so <laughs> true <laughs> TikTok that. isn't real. True that. Um, yes, Instagram isn't real. It's just, you know, nobody um, shows the sadness, you know, um, but the, and the pain. Um, so what do I do? So I, I work with people either individually or I have happiness groups and I have an online program that um, my groups work from. They sign up for 12 months. I'm starting my second more advanced group. So my first group, happiness group is happiness as a verb. Um, plus Zoom, and we meet for an hour a week, and we um, they learn nine skills in 12 months, and they have three exercises um, for each skill, and um, it's phenomenal. It's it's so much fun. I laugh so much with my groups, um, and a, a bunch of them, and I just started the groups last year, just about this time, and I was, because I only did individual work before that, and um, I have I have my first group of, of people graduating from happiness as a verb and, and they're all graduating into all of them. I have not one person that's not, that's stepping away, which is so phenomenal. And they're going into my lessons of life, love and trust, which is um, an online program with nine lessons. We're only working on two skills, but nine lessons. And it's all about building self-love and trust, trust in self, trust in others. We really can't have happy, healthy relationship with ourselves or with others if we don't trust ourselves more, trust other people more, and when we don't love ourselves. Mm. It's difficult to connect deeply with people if you don't now, love yourself. If you're in a relationship or you're married, can you as a couple uh, do the groups or how does that work? So I do have a number of couples in my groups and it's beautiful because um, they start speaking the same language and they're doing the exercises and it gives them you know, this, this mutual new way of, of talking to each other. And then the group itself has this beautiful, the, the wisdom of the collective. I'm smart, but everybody's smart in my opinion, there are many different types of intelligence. And, and so like, I'll pipe up, but then somebody else will pipe up and they'll have this other idea that I would never think of. And then, and it's, this, yeah, it's this wonderful, wonderful thing. And I also do work with couples. So prior to COVID, I was working with couples for like an hour and a half. And couples found me because I am good at what I do. But working with couples is challenging. And so when COVID hit and quarantine hit, I knew a lot of couples were going to be affected because we can limp along in a very complacent relationship when we only see each other a couple of hours a day for a long time, right? You know, we, for years, we can limp along in a complacent relationship. But then when you're stuck together 24-7 for months, I just knew, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> this is going to be hard. So I created boot camps for couples. And rather than trying to heal every old trauma over their past 5, 10, 20 year time together, I focus on skill building. So um, I work with them for three hours. It's a three hour intensive. They come to my home then they can't just hit a button and leave when they get angry, right? They're stuck on the side of a mountain with me <laughs> and, um, and we have to work through it. So it's, it's beautiful in that way. And they choose a track of either communication, conflict, or trust. And then I, I give them a questionnaires that they fill out. They don't share them with each other. They send them directly back to me because I want really honest answers. And then from those questionnaires, I choose the skills that I am going to teach them in those three hours. And then we do skill building, role playing, skill building, role playing. So we take those skills to the existing challenges that are in their marriage or in their relationship, and we create different resolutions to the challenges and so it's a, it's a whole rewiring of the brain and it's motivation and inspiration to see how new skills can bring them to better places, even with the challenges that have been there for a while. And, um, and that's been super fun. Like I have, I love doing them. I think it's more painful for them than for me, but um, I can tell you they leave happier. They leave more hopeful. And it's not usually just a one-time thing. Many of the couples, I'll, I'll see them two and three times. And then that usually seems to be the sweet spot mm -hmm. um, because you just don't, you can't change a relationship that's been going on for years, right? In like three hours. It just, I wish I had a magic wand. Even everything that they taught me at the Brennan school, I can't, I can't, it's, there, there was no magic wand included. Yeah, so, you have to do um, the work. You have to do the have work. To, you have to do the work. 
So Cindy, this is all incredibly fascinating. And I think it's amazing and awesome. And I wanted you to just let people know how, if they, if they're interested in working on their happiness and working with you, how do they get in touch with you? Well, they can reach me um, through email, Cindy, C-I-N-D-Y at transform-heal.com. Um, and I just want to say I have, I, I have prices across the board. And, and one of the things that I wanted, the reason why I created the group program due to COVID was because I wanted an offering that anyone could afford anyone that was to be the same price as like a copay. So my group program is only $49 a month. The one-on-one work is more expensive because you're getting a lot more of me and it moves you through your journey a lot faster. But I, w- I wanted that offering. So you can reach me at Cindy at transform-heal.com. Um, you can also go to my website, which is transform-heal.com. But um, yeah, I, I hope that I really... I'm hopeful about 2022. Uh, I think we're going to be normalizing COVID a lot more because it's not going away. And people can focus again on their happiness and on their relationships. And and rather than just being stuck, I think we've all been kind of stuck in survival mode. Um, And I'm starting to see that shift and change a bit that people want to be happy again. And they deserve to be happy. I mean, we all deserve to be happy. It's been a rough couple of years, man. It sure has. It sure has. It's a crazy time in our world. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. I really am so grateful that you were willing to be part of this uh, interview and be a guest. And I hope that anyone that's listening, that you'll reach out to Cindy if you need some happiness or just some some help uh, moving forward in your own life. Yeah, happier, right? We can always happier. Want, we always want better communication skills. We always want to be more confident. We always want to not be stuck. You know, we always want to be happier. And it's it's possible. I'm not I'm not special. I mean, if I can learn it, anybody can learn it. And Jay and I, one of the reasons why our relationship is so good, it doesn't mean that we don't have issues. We have we have somebody that we see too when we hit a wall. But we practice the skills that I teach every day, every day. That is amazing. So thank you again. And I hope you all will reach out to Cindy. Right. Make 2022 your happiest year ever. Woohoo! Woohoo! Yay! Thank you for joining us on Unbreakable Spirit. To learn more about Jennifer and her holistic weight loss approach, visit her website at sevencompany.com. That's the number seven, company.com. And please join us for our next episode, where we'll hear from more women who overcame hardship and learned how to thrive.